Welcome to the Kids Sleep Health Podcast, brought to you by Full Face Orthodontics. This podcast is presented by Dr. Derek Mahoney, an orthodontist who has lectured in over 120 countries about early intervention orthodontics, something that has a profound impact on sleep health. Dr. Mahoney says his passion is helping young people achieve a better life through better sleep. In this podcast, he will be speaking to the world's leading medical minds about all things kids' sleep health. So tune in, because the secret to kids' sleep might be right under their nose. So it gives me great pleasure to introduce uh, Professor Narinda Singh uh, as our guest uh, speaker today. Uh, Narinda is an enos and throat uh, specialist surgeon who subspecializes just in the nose, sinuses, and snoring. He's the chief of uh, orogalontrology, uh, head and neck surgery at Westmead uh, Hospital in Sydney, uh, and associate professor of surgery at the University of Sydney, which, as you may know, is one of Australia's oldest and largest medical schools, with Westmead being Australia's largest healthcare campus. So certainly Narendra is uh, busy in what he does. Um, uh, the topic today and the questions I'm going to ask uh, Professor Singh uh, really revolve around his special interest in the role of uh, blocked nose and snoring in children, with a particular emphasis on how this can lead to dental and facial abnormalities. Uh, Narendra is considered the go-to enos and throat surgeon amongst many of my referring dentists, uh, my orthodontic colleagues, um, and maxillofacial surgeons. He's published uh, a record of 55 scientific papers. He's written a university textbook. And he's been invited to deliver 143 lectures at international scientific conferences across the globe. Um, Narinda completed his medical degree at University of Sydney, where he was also awarded a Master of Surgery. He was then awarded a three-year fellowship at Guy's and St. Thomas uh, Hospitals, uh, uh, King's College London. Uh, his research uh, team has won multiple awards and funding from the University of Sydney, Microsoft, uh, the Garnett Passe and the Rodney Williams Memorial Foundation, as well as uh, GSK. Um, so, Narinda, thank you so much uh, for doing this uh, on your uh, weekend. Um, uh, can I just start uh, by saying, you know, why do you think it's important uh, for dentists to be able to pick up these airway problems in kids? Well, thanks, Derek. And, and firstly, thanks for the invitation and those very kind words uh, by way of introduction. So to answer your question for dentists, so really um, one of the things that we rely on is that dentists are really the gatekeepers and primary guardians uh, of the um, mouth, the nose, and the airway. Uh, one of the problems we find um, is that with GPs, they are very busy and have a lot of things to look after, blood pressure, diabetes, so many, uh, so many other concerns, whereas uh, our dental colleagues really are at the forefront of the area that we're interested in. Uh, so uh, these days, I, I, Derek, I typically find that um, a, a significant proportion of my referrals actually come from our dental, maxillofacial and orthodontic colleagues uh, rather than from and general I, I think uh, we as dentists probably spend more time uh, looking in the mouth uh, than our medical colleagues. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And certainly I think there's a lot more insight as well. So typically with our, our dental uh, colleagues, we'll um, have a greater idea of what's going on. We'll often uh, send patients um, with already worked up with the right examinations already done uh, and have often spoken to them explaining um, why they're being sent uh, and what they can expect 
when they arrive. So we we certainly appreciate all of our the uh, great insight and referrals from our dental colleagues. And um, most of the dentists uh, would uh, send a patient because maybe on the uh, x-rays they take, uh, whether it's a CBCT or a lateral CEF, they see enlargement of the adenoids and the tonsils. Um, can you can you just run us through, you know, a lot of my parents are sometimes resistant uh, and they think back to their days as a kid and they say, look, everyone got their tonsils and adenoids out. Um, you know, what makes you think my kid's not going to grow out of this problem? That's a fantastic question, uh, Derek, and often arises with parents. Uh, and uh, and what, we, what we've seen over time is that the pendulum does tend to swing in various directions. So certainly uh, in the 70s that you and I might vaguely remember, uh, tonsil, tonsillectomy was almost uh, a, a rite of passage uh, as kids were growing up, uh, whereas uh, since then it was recognised that perhaps back then uh, they were being done indiscriminately uh, and so um, less have been um, removed going forwards. Unfortunately, we're now in a position where the pendulum has swung way too far. So officially, uh, we're advised that anywhere from 6 to 12% of kids routinely should be having uh, some degree of uh, tonsils, uh, tonsil surgery. Uh, and in Australia, we're probably doing about 1% to 2%. So we're clearly not doing uh, as many as is, would be expected from population statistics. Uh, and that's if you talk about tonsils. In, in my experience, um, these days, uh, we find that uh, mainly what we're doing is addressing the nose for um, uh, sleep-related breathing disorders in children rather than the tonsils. So typically, uh, for every six children that I'll need to proceed to surgery for, uh, only one of them will actually have their tonsils out. The majority will actually uh, treat their condition by addressing one of either allergies, big adenoids, or turbinates, and then rarely the septum. Those are probably the main areas. So then to, to answer your question about um, uh, parents' concerns, like surely the, this child will grow out of it. Do, um, why do I need to do anything about this? It's a great question, and, and it's, it's very important that it's addressed. So typically um, adenoids themselves certainly often uh, can shrink by about age six or so in children. But while that child has been mouth breathing from uh, early age up until that age of six, the damage has occurred. So it's critical, uh, as, as I'm sure you're aware, Derek, uh, that kids breathe through their nose as they're growing up, uh, because if they don't, it does affect the development of their face uh, and their jaws and their airway, which can then have lifelong significant consequences. So the sooner we can address that, uh, the better. Uh, and that's why it's critical to intervene early. Uh, and and yes, uh, you know, eventually um, kids might stop mouth breathing. They might stop teeth grinding. Uh, they might stop having all of the sleep disorders that uh, adult, uh, parents typically see, such as restless sleep, uh, bedwetting, all of those problems which can be linked back, um, recurrent ear infections, all of those things that can be linked back to their not breathing properly through the nose. Uh, but then all of those things will have consequences. So if we address that early, we can avoid that whole raft of problems uh, through simple early recognition and intervention. Perfect. Um, I also, you know, see these kids. I mean, I think Australia is um, the place uh, for ear, nose and throat, isn't it? Because every second kid has allergies because we're a population that doesn't really belong in, in this uh, continent. Uh, the majority are immigrants and are not used to the unique flora and fauna. But those who are lucky enough to escape that, because we're a sporting nation, uh, you know, they have a lot of injuries. Mm -hmm. um, 
there's another controversial topic. Um, you know, at what age would you fix someone's deviated septum? Because many parents, I look at the X-ray and the kid's clearly got a deviated septum, but you know, young Johnny's nine or ten. Uh, he snores like a Trojan. Um, you know, what what's the thoughts on deviated septums? Fantastic. Thanks, Derek. You're giving me the tough ones first up. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, so, so certainly, um, as, as we talked about, the, the commonest uh, causes of obstruction in kids are certainly still going to be number one, allergy, number two, big adenoids, number three, the inferior turbinates, and deviated septum I, I would class as number four. So that would probably affect around maybe 10 to 15% of kids with, um, with nasal obstruction. Now, the traditional approach uh, to treating the septum is to wait until the children are older. So in the past, people would often recommend around age 15, around age 18. Personally, I would normally leave it till about age 15. Uh, and the main question we need to ask is, is the child still growing much? And in general, if they haven't changed shoe size in about six months, that's usually a sort of rough and ready uh, measure uh, of, uh, of the growth having slowed enough that we can proceed to correct the septum. One of the problems with fixing the septum too early is that, um, number one, that the septum can deviate again, which then requires revision surgery, which is a more complex procedure than a primary procedure. Uh, and the other issue is that there is that uh, theoretical risk of it affecting the shape of the nose, which is why we try and avoid intervening too early as far as the septum itself. Having said that, we don't leave uh, the children with obstructed noses, even if they do have a deviated septum. So we have a whole range of um, options that we can consider before we go ahead with septal surgery at age 15. So in children under five, we'll typically uh, start by using what's called coblation, which is a device that shrinks the soft tissue of the turbinates and will treat any allergy with uh, intranasal steroids, allergen avoidance, antihistamines, and sometimes immunotherapy. Uh, beyond the age of five, we can do uh, a procedure that's called an inferior turbinoplasty. And in that procedure, what we do is basically remove a small part of the turbinate in the front part of the uh, nose. So the first 1.3 centimetres of the nasal cavity is what's called the internal nasal valve. And that is the critical area for blockage in the nose. So if we can clear that section of the nose by reducing the turbinates, then it means that often we can get them breathing through the nose prevent mouth breathing and leave the septum until they're older, typically around age 15. So we have a whole cohort of kids that we follow uh, that have deviated septums that we, we treat with simple measures first. And then when they're old enough, we go ahead and address their septum. And in a very small percentage where we've done those limited procedures first and they're still, still significantly obstructed, in those kids, sometimes we will go ahead and do septal surgery prior to that. So that, that would certainly be the, um, the standard approach that, uh, that I would recommend. Uh, around the world, some of my colleagues, um, uh, some of the more adventurous colleagues, do uh, proceed with septal surgery in young children. Uh, again, I, I do personally take a conservative and cautious approach, uh, but uh, some of them have some evidence to support uh, their approaches. Uh, unfortunately, the really good uh, randomized trials that uh, pro prove it one way or another haven't really been established yet and are unlikely to because of ethical issues. But uh, but there is a diversity of opinion. The, the majority still take the conservative approach uh, and a few uh, are a bit more aggressive. Thank you. Um, next question. Um, when I ask parents to uh, see or, or I ask them, does your child snore, you know, um, I get 
one of two responses. One is uh, the more common, I don't know, because Johnny sleeps two bedrooms down the road. So I was going to yeah. touch your, I pick your brains on, uh, you know, apps, et cetera, that may help uh, in that decision. Um, the second uh, is those parents who say, oh, yeah, he, he, he snores, I can hear him two doors down the corridor. But what's wrong with that? Because my husband snores louder and sometimes we have a contest to see uh, who snores louder. So could you try and just um, lead me through, obviously, uh, we all know that uh, a child, uh, particularly uh, under six, it's it's not normal to snore. Um, could you touch base with uh, uh, the dangers of snoring in a kid, uh, what it alerts you to, and also um, um, how a parent could help uh, answer that uh, million-dollar question that I teach all my dentists to ask the parent, and that is, does your child snore? Fantastic. Thanks, Sarah. You're coming out with the great questions today. So um, so if I could take the second one first. So the first thing to say uh, for, to advise all parents listening is that snoring in children is not normal. And not only is it not normal, it is a sign of serious pathology and needs to be addressed. So there's, if there's one unambiguous message that we get across uh, in today's talk, that would be the single most important one. Now, yes, if a child is incredibly tired, they've had a huge day, they've been to Disneyland, if they've, um, uh, they're unwell, so they have a, a cold, runny nose, sore throat, yes, they might still snore, as we all do in those circumstances. But regular snoring, even uh, intermittent snoring on a regular basis is not normal and must be addressed because it uh, points to much more serious underlying conditions that must be addressed early, as we've already mentioned. So absolutely, uh, it is not normal and is not a sign of deep sleep, which some parents uh, mistakenly believe that they think, oh, it's just good. It just means he's getting a good night's sleep. No, it actually means he's getting a poor night's sleep. <laughs> and uh, and so that's why we, we cannot leave it uh, unaddressed. Now, in regards to the, the first question, absolutely, there's some kids who uh, can wake the whole house up, like sound like a freight train. Nobody can miss that. With the majority of kids, though, often uh, parents will report uh, noisy breathing or intermittent snoring. Well, they may not be aware because, as you say, they, they just don't sleep in the same room. So so certainly um, there's a number of ways that we can address that uh, and have uh, parents uh, find out if their children are snoring or not. So the obvious one, of course, is to um, uh, stay up or to stick their head in while the child is asleep. Uh, the second one, as you mentioned, is to use um, some of the apps. And, uh, you know, without I, I don't have any commercial relationship with any of the apps, but I, I do think there is a snore app that out there that's uh, that's quite good. Um, these aren't a substitute for a sleep study, which we may have time to discuss at a, at a later time, but, um, but they can sometimes give an indication as to whether a child is snoring or not. But really um, what I'd suggest if, if parents can't do that, because we're all busy and often it's very hard to get up in the middle of the night to have a look at your child. So we need to look for some of the other signs that may indicate a problem is, uh, is present. So if a child is mouth breathing during the day, that is an obvious sign. If the child has dry, cracked lips, that's a suggestion that they are mouth breathing, all of which suggests blocked nose. If they're getting up during the night, uh, coming into the parent's bed, being dis having disruptive sleep, if they're having to uh, pass water at night, particularly if they're bedwetting, all of those things are possible signs. Uh, and then we start looking for some of the, uh, the other uh, less obvious signs. So what uh, parents could descri easily describe as panda eyes, so dark puffy circles under the eyes. So the way that um, any of us might look if we had a big night the night before, uh, that's not normal in children. 
So if we see that, that, that should be a warning sign. Uh, and then other more subtle signs, so if we see white patches on the teeth, that often suggests that they are mouth breathing and the teeth are drying out, particularly if it's on the tips of the teeth that are white, that's uh, often an indication. And again, if we look closely, and I'm, I'm straying into your territory, Derek, so I'll, I'll, I'll tread carefully, but if we see the teeth are worn, for instance, from them grinding the teeth, and sometimes some kids, we can actually hear them grinding the teeth louder than they're snoring. So again, all of those things are all pointing to the same factors. And then last, lastly, we look at more subtle issues. So for instance, um, changes in behavior. So lack of attention, lack of concentration, misbehavior. Interestingly, kids are often different from adults. So when adults don't get enough sleep, we tend to become tired and lethargic. Whereas kids, unusually, often can do the opposite. Sometimes they will become tired and lethargic, but often exact opposite. They become hyperactive disruptive. Sometimes they get laid, labelled um, by the parents, at least, as ADHD. Uh, and so these are, these are all of these things are signs to look out for uh, that can suggest uh, blocked nose in kids. And then um, I teach the uh, dentists to look for uh, venous pooling. And could you just kind of describe to parents, um, you know, some people call them allergic shiners, uh, you know, the, what, what, what would a parent uh, look for typically and what is this a science for? Some people say, look, it's a classic sign of allergies. Others say it's a classic sign of mouth breathing. Can you just dispel some myths on venous pooling or the, for parents, that's those dark circles kids get under their eyes? Yeah, thanks, Derek. Yeah, so, um, so, so the easy way to remember them is just to call them, for parents, is to call them panda eyes. That sort of gives it away. Just as you say, the dark circles under the eyes, puffiness under the eyes. And all of those things are, are, are all hallmarks of poor quality sleep uh, and uh, poor oxygenation uh, at night. And so that can be from physical blockage of the nose or it can be from uh, allergy. Uh, any of those things, what it, the final common pathway is an obstruction of the nose, which then leads to poor oxygenation, which then leads to those problems. Uh, so those, those are all certainly things uh, that, uh, uh, that we look for. Uh, and any of those things can suggest there is a problem. And, and it's interesting that you brought that up, um, Derek, is because uh, one of the things I, I didn't cover before was the signs of allergy. So certainly everyone's familiar with the classic signs of allergy being sneezing, itching, watery eyes, uh, all of those things that we look for. But in actual fact, the majority of people who have allergy often don't have those classic symptoms and often the only symptom they have is nasal obstruction. So then the signs so that we look for in, in those people is, um, again, we can look for the panda eyes. Uh, we can look for what's called the allergic salute, which is when kids uh, run their hand up their nose to try and wipe away any snot. Uh, and then we also have uh, what's called an allergic crease. So if we have a look at the nose, immediately above the tip of the nose, we'll often see a crease in the skin running from left to right, which is from kids doing that allergic salute, rubbing their nose, uh, and then it uh, just creates a little fold in the skin uh, from them doing it so much. And, and um, it would be correct for uh, a dentist to refer on, at least for further evaluation, when they see their kid comes in for their regular six monthly with this classic venous pooling. Absolutely. So, yes, yeah, so certainly those are, those are one of the signs to look for. And then um, if, if we suspect that there is a problem, then a treatment is recommended. And, um, and the, 
the thing is, not every um, uh, child has to see an ENT. At the moment, probably enough don't. Uh, but certainly, um, we can try simple things first. So some of the things that we, that can be done, certainly from the um, uh, the general practice level, uh, is that we can try and um, either test for allergy or even treat for allergy. So um, uh, the easy treatments we can. There's a whole number of things we can do. Typically, we'll um, we'll we'll if they ch children do see us, we will test them first, and that can involve either a skin prick test for allergy or a blood test. Obviously, kids uh, are not as uh, willing or interested in undergoing a blood test, but a skin prick test is relatively straightforward. And with the technique we use in our office now, uh, it's a plastic device that has um, six uh, little points that go into the skin. So it's not painful. It doesn't uh, upset the, ch the, the child and very straightforward to do. Uh, and then if we do identify allergy, the commonest ones that we see, house dust mite allergy is probably the most significant uh, because it, A, it is very common, particularly in Sydney, we have a warm, moist uh, environment, which is the perfect breeding, breeding grounds for house dust mite. And one of the uh, common uh, complaints I hear from uh, patients um, is often they uh, themselves or their children, they travel to um, you know, overseas, to, uh, to Middle East, to Asia, uh, and they report their um, their allergies are completely fine. They come back to Sydney and they run into trouble. So it is it is a real problem for us here and all along the coast. Uh, so house and house dust mite is something that that kids are exposed to significantly at night because they're asleep in a bed, which again is the, is the ideal agar plate for house dust mite. So a bed is warm and it's moist, which is what house dust mite love. So, so certainly um, there are a whole number of things that we can do to reduce the amount of house dust mite, which don't involve any medication. And we typically give parents a handout which tells them to um, uh, remove any uh, carpet, soft furnishings, uh, material, curtains from the bedroom, uh, ideally to get anti-allergy covers. That's been shown in the scientific literature to have the best success rate in reducing house dust mite um, exposure. So the tight-fitting covers over the mattress, the doona, and the pillow that seal in uh, and create a barrier between the house dust mite and the child. And then we recommend that all uh, bedding be washed over 55 degrees once a week. So uh, ideally in a front-loading uh, machine uh, or a top-loader that can go up to those uh, high temperatures. If we can't do that, uh, achieve the high temperatures, because that kills the house dust mite, if we can't achieve that, then we recommend that... Um, Parents either leave the bedding uh, in the dryer for 10 minutes after it's dry, or they hang it over the clothesline uh, for half an hour in the sun. But if the child has a grass or pollen allergy, don't do that. <laughs> and Or you can use, uh, in all, worst case, you can use tea tree oil or eucalyptus oil, uh, which does uh, suppress the amount of house dust mite. So there's, again, there's a whole list of those things that can be done. That's the simple measure for house dust mite avoidance. The next step up from that is the parents can try before they do see an ENT is to try uh, simple medications. And again, obviously we can't give individual medical advice uh, to people we haven't seen, but uh, that's something to, for parents to discuss with their GP. And uh, they can recommend uh, getting um, uh, simple intranasal steroid sprays, which are quite safe to use in kids. Uh, and they can trial those for one spray at night, every night for a month. They don't work straight away. Uh, they do take time to uh, to have effect. If they try that for a month and they're having a good effect, then we've identified that allergy is an issue and we may then be able to avoid an ENT uh, assessment and surgery. 
If that doesn't work, then we can look at um, you know assessment and surgery. Other simple steps would include things like saline sprays uh, that again can be bought over the counter and don't need a prescription, uh, and then antihistamines, uh, which typically for kids will be in the form of uh, adults, uh, be the form of um, uh, tablets or chewables. Uh, whereas in adults we have sprays to use, um, uh, antihistamine sprays that can be used in the nose uh, and in kids over the age of 12. So that, those are some of the, certainly some of the simple things that can be trialled uh, before we proceed with ENT assessment. But uh, we don't want to delay it. If, um, if those things don't work, they need to be seen. Thank you. Um, if we move on to something you did uh, touch on, uh, and that's uh, bedwetting or, as we know, uh, nocturnal enuresis. I know um, one of the things I ask um, adults when I'm uh, assessing whether they need a sleep study uh, to rule out sleep apnea is how many times they get up to go to the toilet every night. And if they say every night once or two, that's normally a high indicator. Can you help parents understand a bit about um, bedwetting in a child? Uh, I mean, a lot of kids just grow out of it naturally, but for the, you know, the, the 10, 11, 12-year-old that's still doing it two, three nights a week, um, uh, what remedies are there and, you know, when would an Enos and throat doctor get involved? Yeah, fantastic. Thanks, uh, Derek. So, so again, it, it might seem very strange that an Enos and throat doctor who specialises in one end of the body is, uh, has an interest in uh, or expertise in the other area. And, again, I, I won't claim to be an expert. And there are many causes of bedwetting, and certainly, um, although uh, we can uh, fortunately cure or significantly improve a number of kids um, who do have it, um, I do suggest that uh, it does be followed up by uh, parents with their GP uh, and other specialists uh, if required, because, because there are, can be other causes. But certainly as far as ENT causes, and this is low-hanging fruit that can easily uh, fix the problem, and even in kids um, younger than age 12, even uh, much younger, um, often um, we, we do see the problem. And uh, the, uh, the, the basis behind it is basically to, to not to go into too much scientific detail for the benefit of the parents listening, but it relates to a hormone that uh, controls the amount of urine that's produced uh, at night. And when we have disruption of our sleep, uh, we have a interference with that feedback loop, which then mean, that means that we don't get that natural reduction in urine production at night which then means the bladder gets full very easily and very quickly. Uh, and that's what then often then leads to um, uh, uh, bedwetting uh, at night. So by correcting the nasal obstruction, having the child breathing properly, having them then going through the normal sleep process, uh, we then find that, that uh, the correct amount of hormone is produced, the normal cycle gets reestablished, and they're no longer filling their bladder at night uh, and uh, having to um, uh, to and, and ending up with bedwetting at night. And that hormone, I think, would it be right? It's the uh, antidiuretic hormone. Yeah, correct. And yeah. that's correct. Yeah. And and in actual fact, it's great that we've touched on this subject, Derek, because um, there are a number of hormones that can be affected um, by um, by interruption in sleep. So the other classic one, of course, is growth hormone, which is uh, produced in the pituitary gland as well. And growth hormone is only secreted in kids at night during deep sleep. Well, that's where its pulses, uh, the main pulses are produced. Uh, so often what we see is, is a lot of the kids who have poor quality sleep, uh, they're typically uh, in the lower percentiles uh, for their height. And again, that can be a warning sign for, for parents if they're charting them in, their, in the kids in the blue book uh, and they see that they're at the lower uh, percentile, particularly if the parents themselves 
uh, are of normal height or of uh, above average height and they're not seeing the same pattern in their in their children this is a, an uh, an early uh, warning indicator that uh, the child is getting poor quality sleep and really not getting deep sleep uh, and and often we find in the kids that we do proceed to intervention so we clear their nasal airway we often find that in the weeks to months postoperatively the children actually have a growth spurt uh, and typically I'll ask the parents and they'll tell me that uh, they had to buy new clothes, buy new shoes, uh, and that the, the child's hunger is just, they're, they're just eating twice as much as what they're used to because now they're actually getting deep sleep, which means they're getting a release of growth hormone and they're actually uh, catching up to where they were. So that's the good thing is if we catch it early enough, they will uh, catch up to a certain degree. Uh, so it's, it's not that it can't be corrected. Perfect. Um, you're talking about uh, children and their eating habits. I find when a parent reports to me that their kid is a slow, fussy eater, doesn't like meat, you know, et cetera, et cetera, I normally look in the back of the throat. And I've taught dentists, um, uh, you know, uh, the concept of looking at the size of the tonsils, right? So we do still have many in the profession who say, look, I'm not going to touch the kid's tonsils unless they have five episodes of tonsillitis every year. Um, Could you lead us through what would be the pros and cons if a kid has non-infected but very enlarged tonsils, grade three, grade four, uh, of not intervening? And do you see a link between those large tonsils and the kids' eating habits? Fantastic. Thanks, Jerry. That's a, that's a great question. So, so, so absolutely, um, in the past, tonsils were in children were removed primarily because of recurrent tonsillitis. And the official guidelines is actually seven episodes in a year, right? <laughs> Uh, or three a year for three years, right? Or five a year for two years. So that, that's the official recommendation. Of course, some parents decide that they don't want their children to have that many episodes, don't want to have that much antibiotics, don't want to take that much time off school. So they'll often intervene earlier. Uh, although it's a recommendation, it's it's not a hard and fast rule. But certainly in the past, again, in the 70s, when um, uh, there was a lot more um, uh, close contact, let's say, uh, between kids, then, um, then there was obviously a lot more spread of infection, and so infected tonsils were commonplace. What I would say is certainly now, and, and certainly for the last 20 years or so, the number one reason for removing uh, tonsils in children is not because of recurrent tonsillitis. It's because of airway obstruction. Easily that would account for probably 16 out of out of every 20 uh, tonsillectomies. So only a small number of, uh, of tonsillectomies are now done for infection. The majority are done for obstruction. So that's that's a misconception that it's important that we we clear up because a lot of parents, you know, when they're told their child needs to have their tonsils or adenoids removed, will respond as you say with, "Well, he hasn't had tonsillitis. Why do, why do we need to do this?" So certainly, um, as you've correctly pointed out, that is not the main reason for doing them these days. Uh, as to um, the children who have difficulty eating, so that can be from both physical obstruction with very large tonsils, and you mentioned the tonsil grading scale. So we talk about the grading scale one, two, three, and four, very easy to follow. One representing the tonsils take up 25% of the space at the back of the throat, uh, two being 50%, three being uh, 75%, and four being you need a mouth straight away that they're yeah. touching, right? So, so, so that's certainly for the very large tonsils, they can physically cause difficulty with swallowing. Uh, and for those children, removing the tonsils can make them uh, eat much more easily. Now, often though, um, what we find is it's not necessarily the tonsils, but the obstructed nasal airway. 
that's causing them to be a difficult eater. And so parents will often, the way they'll notice it is that the child is very loud when they eat. There's sort of a lot of mouth sounds when they're eating, and it's because they can't eat with their mouth closed because if they do, they can't breathe through their nose. And so now they're having to try and eat, try and swallow, and try and breathe through the mouth all at the same time. Uh, so with those children, often the tonsils may or may not be enlarged, but it's more that their nose is, is blocked either from allergy or from big adenoids or from big turbinates, and then sometimes from a deviated septum. Perfect. Uh, one last question, um, and it's one that I get asked uh, quite frequently by parents, and that is on the concept of recurrent uh, ear infections or what we know as otitis media. Um uh, some parents uh, report they've had one, two, maybe three sets of grommets. Um, um, is there any uh, uh, non-surgical uh, intervention for recurrent otitis media? And is there any studies to show that if you have more than one or two sets of grommets, there's uh, more chance of hearing problems long-term because of scar tissue, et cetera? Fantastic, Derek. You've really been listening to your patients because you're asking the exact right questions that... Uh, that they come up with and honestly if, if the parents just listen to this podcast i think they'd um they'd learn everything they need to know <laughs> to start maybe even practicing ent themselves so yes absolutely to, to answer your question uh, acute otitis media is a uh, an infection involving the middle ear so we always have to distinguish that from external otitis otitis externa that's when kids get water in their ears while swimming um or um uh, swim in a creek or something like that and end up with an external ear infection. That's a separate issue, whereas otitis media is an infection behind the eardrum. Okay, Sometimes that can uh, perforate, rupture the eardrum, and then there can be discharge, but typically that's, that's not the case. Uh, now, acute otitis media in children is common, so almost every child will have at least one episode. Uh, typically, the peak season for ear otitis media is between age six months and two years. And the reason for that is that uh, the tube between the ear and the back of the nose, the eustachian tube, uh, is shorter, it's narrower, it's at a lower angle, uh, and kids of that age are more inclined to pick up bugs from uh, one another in the playground or from uh, eating dirt or something like that. So certainly the, the, all, almost all kids will have at least one episode and the vast majority will just respond with simple measures uh, and often don't even need uh, antibiotics. And the official guidelines really aren't to use antibiotics for a single uncomplicated episode and only to consider them uh, if there are any uh, other factors involved. Now, recurrent acute otitis media is, as the name suggests, when p kids are getting multiple episodes. And generally, the official guidelines we normally go by is if there are three or more episodes in a six-month period, that's when we consider... ENT referral and uh, the need for grommets. Uh, now, as far as uh, grommets are concerned, Will, and, uh, and ear infections, generally um, we sort of split them up into two groups of children. So the first group, which for most of the parents uh, that are listening would, um, would be affected by, is generally kids with no other significant medical history. Uh, and then the second group is kids with uh, uh, other significant medical history. So for instance, syndromes, um, or um, uh, certain conditions that predispose them to getting ear infections. And those kids will often get lots of ear infections and require specialist care. So we, we won't go into those uh, that uh, subgroup today. Um, so mainly we'll talk about uh, 
just uh, regular kids who, who don't uh, have um, any other uh, significant medical history. So for most of those children, uh, if they have three or more episodes in a six-month period, or if they have persistent fluid behind the ear, because typically what happens after infection is the child will get it fluid behind the ear, which typically will drain away within three months, usually within a couple of weeks. But sometimes if that fluid sticks around, then it, and if it stays more than three months, then we call then we call it glue ear. And that's because the fluid, if we when we do the operation, it's no longer thin and watery, it's now thick like glue. And so that's why those kids actually need an operation, whereas the thin and watery fluid will typically clear away by itself. So if they've had persistent fluid or if they've had recurrent ear infections, then they need grommets. And for the majority of children, uh, we always do check the back of the nose to look at the adenoids. Now, if the adenoids are enlarged, that often they will often then physically block the tube between the ear and the nose, which means that often even just putting in one set of grommets will often result in the ear infections coming back because the adenoids haven't been addressed. Uh, and the other thing is even adenoids that aren't that big can sometimes hub, become a harbour or a reservoir for infection so that once um, the infection goes away, when the child gets a bit run down, the immune system's a little bit um, a little bit weakened, then the, that, hub, that reservoir of infection can flare up uh, and they get ear infections again. So typically, if we do have any concerns about that, we will address the adenoids at the time of grommet insertion. And in the majority of those children, one set of grommets will be enough. They, will, they typically will not need more. Uh, again, the, the smaller subgroup we talked about, they will often need um, multiple grommets and sometimes special grommets that last longer than a few months. But the majority of kids, one set of grommets, if the adenoids are addressed, uh, and there are no other medical uh, issues, then typically that one set of grommets will be enough. Uh, again, a small number may need several sets, but that's that's very much the minority. And typically, if we address the adenoids, then it's less of a problem. Perfect. So just to uh, end the podcast, thanks again for giving up your time. Very informative as usual. Um, can I just ask, if a parent listening has a kid who has any of the things we've talked about and they want to get in to see you, um, I know that uh, their dentists uh, can refer directly to you and um, the, um, uh, they, they don't necessarily need to see their GP. What, what happens um, if they're listening to this podcast and they uh, want to see you directly? Can they self-refer and how do they do that or do they need to see their GP? Can you just lead parents through how they can get to see an e-nose and throat specialist um, uh, uh, either directly or indirectly? Thanks, Derek. And uh, and um, I, I, I'd start by saying um, the most important thing is that if uh, a parent does recognise any of these issues, that they see an ENT uh, specialist. It doesn't have to be me, but as long as they see someone. The biggest problem for me is that my wait list is typically around six months. So <laughs> for, for kids, that can be, can be problematic. We do want them seen a bit sooner. Um, in Australia, yes, you can self-refer and see an ENT, but that's not the norm and I don't recommend it because Medicare in Australia does not cover that. Mm -hmm. So in Australia, to see a specialist, you must have a valid referral uh, that's uh, within, a, uh, within the right time frame. So typically um, what we do recommend uh, is that parents uh, see their GP or see their dentist, both of whom uh, can uh, refer uh, to an ENT, um, and they can parents can request if there's a particular ENT that they do want to see uh, as well. Um, in 
One of the problems that we find, and I'm, and I'm sure you're familiar with this as well, Derek, and I'm sure a lot of the parents listening will, will be conscious of, is that there is a lot of reluctance um, uh, in the uh, in, in, on the part of many GPs, unfortunately, to refer. And it, it is an ongoing problem that we do have um, in Australia. And this is one of the reasons why our dental colleagues uh, have been so effective um, in, uh, in providing an alternative um, pathway. And what I would suggest uh, to parents who are finding that problem, where the, the GPs are reluctant to um, refer and uh, advise the parents that um, little Joe or little Jane will grow out of this, is that they uh, they politely um, uh, persist and um, and uh, and and request that um, that their concerns be uh, be addressed uh, and they be referred. Um, and if 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 they're still struggling, then um, it may be worth. Um, uh, and, and this is the beauty of Australia: is that you're not limited in which GP you see. You can see other GPs. You can see a dentist, um, particularly. Um, uh, anyone who listens to your podcast, Derek, and is familiar with your work, who uh, are very well educated in this area uh, and who can um, make the appropriate referrals. But the, the one thing I would say to parents is um, don't be discouraged um, if your primary carer uh, is a bit um, hesitant and if, if you have concerns. A number of times that I've heard uh, parents tell me that um, their intuition was they knew something wasn't right uh, and they just weren't getting the answers uh, and so eventually they they found their way through and, and had great results. I think uh, mums are always the, the best at that, aren't they? They really know their kids. I always worry mm-hmm. when um, a kid comes for a consultation with me and dad comes along, you know, and uh, it's normally <laughs> because uh, mum was busy with the other kid that day, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, you ask dad questions like, you know, what's your kid's name? He gets that. Then the second <laughs> one is... Um, uh, you know, how old are they? And you sit them looking over at the kid and say, oh, seven, right? Uh, whereas a mum, yeah. she remembers when young Johnny fell off the tree six years ago and got a stitch right there and blah, blah. So mums are good. They've got that own sort of mother's intuition is the word. Uh, so that's yeah. great. Look, this, that's been a, a really good podcast. Um, uh, thanks very much for all that information. We could have gone for another hour, but we, we limit these to 30 minutes. And um, uh, I'm sure there'll be... Uh, Lots of questions that people uh, could feel too. If I do have, say, one of my um, medical or dental colleagues who listen to this uh, and want to contact you, um, your website, um, email, uh, in, in, what's the best way if they want to ask you a question about one of their patients? Fantastic. Thanks, Derek. You're very kind. And, and again, it, was, it, it has been a real pleasure. And, uh, and uh, um, as you say, the time has flown by, flown by and I'm we're more than happy to do it again some other day. And, and maybe to talk about snoring in adults, which is my other pet topic uh, yeah. uh, at the moment. Um, yeah. But certainly, um, if anybody does particularly want to contra- contact us or if just get some more information before you see your own ENT, um, the easiest way would be to have a look at our website, which is very easy to find. It's just www.entsdentsydney.com.au. And we've got a lot of um, information just to save me from having to say the same thing every day. So there's a lot of um, good information there for kids and for adults. Uh, and, and again, you know, wherever the parents end up, um, I'm happy for them to just have a look at that and contact us if they, if they would like further information from us. Excellent. Thank you very much, Sarinda. Uh, look forward to chatting you. And thank you very much for looking after all my patients. Uh, they always come back rave reviews. Never, never had one uh, bad uh, comment uh, after seeing you. So thanks again. Fantastic. Thanks, Derek. It's been a real pleasure. And uh, we'll see you next time.
Thank you for listening to the Kids Sleep Health Podcast brought to you by Full Face Orthodontics. For more information about Dr. Mahoney's work, visit fullfaceorthodontics.com.au or visit his social media pages listed in the show notes.